glad you're here this morning. We're going to jump right into it this morning, where we left off last week in our series, Movement. We've been doing it from the book of Acts, talking about this movement that God's doing called the church. And so I'm going to just pray for us that God will speak to our hearts and uh, challenge our minds and challenge us to be who He desires for us to be. And so let's just pray. Let's go before our Father. Our Father, um, who art in heaven, you are different than us. You are holy, and uh, as we sang in the song, your son Jesus he is. He is uh, the one who holds the universe in place. He is the one who purchased our salvation. And so we come before his feet. And I ask God for a divine encounter as we open up your word this morning. I ask for you to do something supernatural that uh, part of your plan, but doesn't even make sense to us that somehow you would speak to each one of us through my lips. And uh, you know that I'm a broken vessel and I pray that you would supernaturally use me, that you'd flow through me, that you'd allow your words to speak into each one of our hearts. And I pray for hearts and minds, uh, ears to be opened, eyes to be opened, however you desire to speak to us in whatever arena. Do the supernatural thing that you do where you know I don't know everything that's happening in everybody's life, but you do, and you can speak through my words, my lips, according to your scripture, uh, to speak into the, each one of those situations. Will you do that? Will you have us encounter you through your word as we open it up this morning? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. If you have a Bible, I invite you to pull it out and turn there with me right now. Acts chapter 5, and uh, we'll start in verse 1. We're picking up where we left off last week. Last week we were in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, which is really an update of how the church was doing in the first century. And what was happening, if you remember, it was a great picture of the church. You had these people that were incredibly diverse. They came from all over the place. Do you remember that? There was all those places in Acts chapter 2 that we read, ones we couldn't even pronounce, ones that we could pronounce, islands, inlands, uptown, downtown, all around town. There's all kinds of people that were gathered together in the early church. They didn't even all speak the same language. And so they had racial diversity. They had preference or differences. They liked different food, wore different clothes, all kinds of stuff. But they had a supernatural unity. They were one in heart and in mind. How amazing is that? What, what, something to aspire to, for sure. And we saw also, as they were living out the new life that we were talking about last week, they also had a supernatural generosity. And some of you that were here last week, you may remember at the end of the service, we had you come forward and get different envelopes that had ideas in them of ways that you could be generous this week. And uh, Lord willing, God, use that in your life this week for those of you who were here last week. I know some of you, he did it right away. I got a Facebook message before I even was back home. Uh, from somebody at our church, and I just love when God does this kind of thing. It was uh, a guy who said that he had been praying and talking about fasting, but hadn't actually taken the step to do it, and one of the ideas in his envelope was fast from a couple meals and then take the money and give it to the needy. <laughs> I love that, because we can't manipulate. We didn't know that guy. We don't know what you're praying about, just so you know. Uh, some people you think, well, hey, they put this in. They knew. They've been reading my mail. I've had people say that to me before. We don't read anybody's mail. <laughs> and do that. It's the Holy Spirit. He's working and doing that stuff had other people that sent in stories that said, we got these ideas in this envelope, none of them really resonated with me. It didn't feel like the Lord was leading me to do any of those things, and so they didn't, but then it made them sensitive to generosity opportunities, and at the end of the week, God gave them different things to do, and so neat just to hear the stories, and so Lord willing, God's working in your heart with those things too. You can send those in if you want um, to share those stories with us. They're always a blessing, but the idea you could have gotten from last week's church was it was the perfect church, because you saw these people and how generous they were being. You saw how unified they were. Let me just say this. Don't be fooled. The perfect church didn't even exist in the first century. If you've been on a quest looking for it, it doesn't exist because the church is filled with imperfect people. And what we're going to look at today is that we're going to see one of Satan's tools is to use imperfect people and their sin and to ruin the body from within the church. We've already seen in Acts chapter 4 uh, that Satan tries to use persecution and things from outside the church, and that didn't work. And now in this passage we're going to look at in Acts chapter 5, he tries to use a more deadly tool. It's sin from within. If you have your Bibles, look at it with me. In Acts chapter 5, I'll start reading in verse 1. What's just happened in verses 36 and 37 is there was a guy named Joseph. He's also known as Barnabas. 
and he's given money, sold a field, and gave the money to the church so they can meet needs. And then there's another example, and it's a contrast of this husband and wife team, Ananias and Sapphira. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Then notice this, the issue wasn't the amount. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. <laughs> you think? And then the young men came forward, and they wrapped his body. And so there were multiple people there. It wasn't just Ananias and, and the apostles, but there were other people there. Maybe this was a church service. I don't know. But they came forward, and they wrapped his body. And they took him out, and they carried him out, and they buried him. In verse 7, part 2 of this. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She answered, yes, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men, same ones, the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So here you've got this couple that fell to the pressure of keeping up appearances. What we have here is a, a contrast between what happened in verses 36 and 37 with Barnabas, a man who was held up as an example for the church, who, who sold a field and gave the money so that needs could be met, and they saw the recognition that he got. It wasn't what Barnabas was going for, but they wanted that recognition, and so they wanted to do the same thing, but they didn't have it in them to actually give to that level. But they wanted everybody to think they did, and so they wanted to put forth a presentation of a spirituality that didn't really exist. And Peter said, it's okay if it wasn't there. It's okay if you weren't able to do that, but you lied about it. The problem was they got under this pressure of image consciousness, this idea of making everybody think things are better than they actually are, trying to present a picture of what you desire to be reality in your life and ignoring what's actually reality in your life. What a dangerous place. Especially when you consider what an image conscious culture that we live in. Let's think about it. All the things that are pressure for us to look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, behave a certain way, say the right things in the right moment, all the stuff that's out there. If you just go through the, any of the stores that sell magazines, look at any store that's Walmart and they've got the headlines there of all the different magazines on your way out, or go to the mall. If you're flying, you go to the airport, just go to the bookstore. Look at all the magazines that are out there and see what some of the topics are. You'll see things like, you know, 10 ways to a better belly, you know, turn that keg and do a six-pack, or whatever the titles are for those different things. You see, you know, eight ways to remove the wrinkles, four principles to a better face, you know, it's all kinds of different topics that are out there to make you lose weight, look better, do all kinds of stuff. You see pictures like this one, you get these types of things before? It's only minutes. Who wouldn't want that, right? Just rub this cream on your face and you'd be, but which side were you going for? Well, we all know, right? Because there's a pressure to look a certain way. There's a pressure to be a certain type of person. You put on top of that church and expectations of that and religious community and morals and some of those types of things. And some of you, you think about all the pressure there is to keep up an image. Just think how many products you used this morning to get ready for church. No, really, think about it. 
10, 20? Oh, I didn't use 10. Oh, think real quick. Uh, shampoo, conditioner, lotions. If you use any makeups or anything like that. Toothbrush, hairbrush, other kinds of brushes perhaps that I don't even know what they're called. Uh, tweezers, you pluck things. You, do, you get to 10 pretty quick. So how many did you use? And some of you guys might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not into all that stuff. You know, I'm, just, I'm not into the pretty. Uh, okay, your thing is the same. It's just packaged differently, by the way. You're like trying to be the man's man, so you don't pluck anything, right? And you got in your wardrobe, there's like a certain percentage that has to be camouflaged. Like there's, that has to happen. Maybe that's why you drive a truck and all those. You still have image. It's just a different image you're trying to portray. There's a pressure on all of us based on our backgrounds, based on our circumstances, based on our culture, all those things to do that type of stuff. And it's there, and we all experience it. I remember when I was a, a kid, just a first grader. My parents got divorced when I was in first grade. I remember the day... That my mom told me they were getting a divorce. Broke my heart. A little first grade heart just shattered. Came home, had a meal with my mom. Dad wasn't home that night. Afterwards, she sits down with me. She starts telling me that uh, her and my dad are getting divorced. In fact, says that dad's been leaving at night when you go to bed already. He's already been going to a different place to stay. And, and uh, it just broke my heart. I started weeping like a little baby. And I remember thinking through uh, what had happened. And what's that going to mean for me? What does that mean for our family? What's it going to mean for my brother? And, Work through that. And then that night, still on that same night, I remember this one thought came vividly. No one can know. Why? As a first grader, I was thinking of this. Why? Why can no one know? Why can no one know there's something wrong? Why can no one know there's pain? Why can no one know there's problems? Why? It's just there. That's the culture we live in. That's the society we live in. That's the people that we are. Here's the danger. The danger is that we can be so image conscious of what's happening on the outside, we become sin unconscious. It's a tool of the enemy. We don't realize what's happening on the inside. We become so image conscious, we become sin unconscious. And the way that it happens a lot of times, a sign of it, is that we begin to minimize our sins. And I want to read a couple statements to you at a moment. And I just want you to ask yourself, do I ever say these things about my sin? For instance, first one, it's not that big of a deal. Everyone does it. No, I mean, everybody, I mean, it might, right, wrong, whatever, but everybody does it. And so our standards change based on the culture that we're in, based on the people that we're around, based on who our friends are, based on whatever that stuff is. That's one of the things that we say. How about this one? It's just a white lie. So we've got so many lies, we can now categorize them by name, right? You never hear people say, it's just a black lie, it's just a red lie. It's like those are the bold ones. It's just a white lie. It's not that big of a deal, right? Everybody does it. It's just a white lie. How about this one? It's just once. It might be wrong. Like you're, by saying the statement you're acknowledging, you shouldn't be doing, but it's just one time. So just one time, it's cumulative effect. It's not that big of a deal because it's not that big of a deal and everyone does it. It's just a white line. It's just once. Or how about this? I'll redeem it. This is the kind of thing where it's like, I'm going to cheat on my taxes, but I'm going to give the extra money to charity. <laughs> Okay, Uh, we try and make something good out of something we know that's bad. Like, I'm going to do bad now, but in the long run, over some period of time, I'm going to redeem it in some way. Or how about this one? And this is probably the most popular one. It's not hurting anyone. We don't see a direct effect on another human being, and so we think, well, it's, it's not hurting anyone when I overeat and use food as an idol. It's not hurting anyone when I look at images on the computer screen. It's not hurting anyone. You can fill in the blank with lots of different sin. What one do you think Ananias and Sapphira said? Because they could have said any of those. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, everybody puts forth the best foot, right? Everybody wants to look better than they actually are. Everyone does it. It's just a white lie. It's just a small lie. 
It's just this one time. And in the end, I mean, the church is going to end up with money. It's not hurting anyone. In fact, everybody wins. The church is going to get a large sum of money. They're going to think that we're more generous than we actually are. We're going to get a better reputation. Maybe we'll get a position of leadership or some influence or some new friends or whatever it was that they were going for. And they felt pressure to this image and ignored reality. And what this passage teaches, if it doesn't teach us anything else, is that sin is serious. That God takes sin incredibly serious. And what we sometimes forget when we think that we're not hurting anyone is that we're actually sinning against an infinite God. Even if we don't see immediate direct results, maybe it's a ripple effect. Sin always affects everybody around us, but sometimes we don't see the direct effect. But we're ultimately sinning against God. And he takes sin incredibly serious. Now, sometimes as believers especially, we tend to minimize it because we say, well, Jesus paid for it, so it's, not, you know, it's already covered. The future sin's already covered. Or we compare ourselves to other people, and we've got some kind of grading scale. I've never actually seen it written down, but there's some kind of grading scale where our sin's never... There's always people that are worse. Like, at least I don't... You know, you fill in the blank with whatever it was, something that you know somebody else does. At least I don't do this. And so we minimize our sins. And this passage of Scripture, if nothing else, told to the early church here by Luke, tells us that God takes sin seriously. And this is after the resurrection. And you look at what happens here. There's this couple trying to imagine being this couple, trying to imagine being Ananias or Sapphira. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And it says, With his wife's full knowledge. Now I try to grasp that for a minute. Guys, those of you who are married, can you even fathom, you know, assuming that your wife is a believer, okay, you're a follower of Christ, your wife's a follower of Christ, you're, aren't you like doubly blessed, by the way? Because you have not only the Holy Spirit, but you have a wife. Isn't that great? I've heard men say before uh, statements like, you know, the Holy Spirit's voice sounds a lot like my wife's. You know, it's just that, that way. I, I imagine, like, if I was Ananias and Sapphira and I'm laying in bed and I said to my wife, here's the deal. We're going to give some of the money, but we're going to keep some of it back. We're going to present it like we're giving all the money. Uh, I can imagine my wife saying something like this. Are you kidding me? It's, that's probably what the Holy Spirit would sound like to me in that moment. It says here that his wife had full knowledge of this. And look at what he's doing. He's going to keep back some of the money. That word keep back, it's actually come from one word there. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's in Titus chapter 2. If you want to look it up on your own, you can, verse 10. And it's translated steal. This word actually means to embezzle or pilfer, to take. The interesting thing about this passage is it's talking about his own possessions. What's happened here is either, well, we don't know 100% for sure, but it's either one of these two scenarios. Either he's promised he's going to give the whole amount, or when he presents the money, he's trying to portray he's giving the whole amount. Because we know that later, from we already read the verses, it's because of his lying that's the real issue here. It's not the amount. And we see this word used in the Old Testament in different places. One of the places is in Joshua chapter 7. That's when God's beginning a movement there too, in the Old Testament. And there's a guy named Achan. And he was told that all the stuff was supposed to be dedicated to God, but he kept back some of it for himself. You know what? That didn't go well for him. God has him stoned, his wife stoned, his whole family stoned. They burn their bodies. And so I imagine being Ananias and Sapphira laying in bed and Ananias presents the story and his wife doesn't say, honey, I remember when I was a little girl in children's church and hearing this story about this guy named Achan. She doesn't say that. It doesn't cross his mind either from his knowledge of the scriptures. And so they decide they're going to do this. They're going to move forward with this process. And, and I wonder what Ananias thought that day was going to be like when he brought the check and he presented it to the apostles. And do you think Peter was going to pat him on the back? Well done, good and faithful Ananias. you think he was going to get like, new friends from this process? Or, or maybe you know, one of the other apostles would come up and say, this is so great, you know how many needs we're going to meet with this? And, and I can imagine his anticipation as he got ready that morning. He's shaving or plucking. We don't know if he was a pretty boy or what he was. 
But I have a feeling he had no idea that Peter would say what Peter says to him in the next verse. Do you see it? Right after he drops off his check in verse 2, look at what verse 3 says. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept some for yourself, some of the money you receive for the land? And so expecting, perhaps, a well done, or thank you, boy, some type of encouragement. He says, how has Satan so influenced your life? How is it that Satan has so filled your heart, Ananias? I'd imagine that was shocking. I'd imagine that got his attention. Some people debate about how Ananias died here. There are some people that will say that it was because of shock. Some say because it was a heart attack. We know from the way that it's packaged in the scripture that it's actually divine judgment. So it doesn't really matter what the medical cause was. But think about the stunned feeling you'd have if you were Ananias in this moment. How has Satan so filled your heart? Now, some people talk about whether or not Ananias and Sapphira are believers. The reality is we don't know for sure. The majority of commentators I read this week believe that they are. Uh, They would say things like, well, they're part of the congregation, and at that stage with the commitment level that was required, persecution taking place, all those types of things, it would have been pretty hard to become part of the congregation and not be a believer. Not that it's impossible, pretty difficult. There's a question about why Luke would present this to believers if they're not believers. What's the lesson to be learned? But people who argue that they're not believers... Look at this and say, well, Satan filled their heart. Satan can't do that because Satan can't possess a believer. They're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they're possessed here. I just want to clarify that. It says they're incredibly strongly influenced. Like when the Spirit fills us and controls some of our decisions or dictates or influences some of our decisions. Whether they're a believer or not, to be honest with you, I don't know. But I do know that Satan, while he can't possess a believer, I do believe that's true. He can have an incredible influence in a believer's life. And he does a lot of, you look through the New Testament and you see all the things that he does on believers in the New Testament. You see the Lord's Prayer even, which is given as an example of how to pray. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our temptations, and then lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil or the evil one. We're going to pray these things. You look what happens with Peter. And Jesus tells him, Satan has desired to sift you, Peter. Active in the life of believers. You look at Ephesians chapter 6, and if you remember, that's written to believers. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, put on the full armor of God to protect yourselves from the schemes of the devil. And Peter himself later warns believers in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. And so just because you become a believer doesn't mean that Satan is no longer interested in your life. And so I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira are believers or not. I'll be real candid with you. However, I do know that Satan is actively trying to destroy you as a believer. And he can have an influence in your life. He can ruin your life. He can ruin your testimony. He can do damage to the kingdom as a result of things that happen in the life of a believer. And you see here this question that Peter asked is so interesting to me. How did you get to this place? Implied in the question is, this was a process. This wasn't just a one-time bad decision by Ananias. That something happened that led him to this place. And we don't know if it's like a little bit, it's just once. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. It's just other white lies. Other times of trying to present himself as better than he actually is. And now you've gotten to the place where you'd actually do this. You'd come before the whole church. You'd lie to the Holy Spirit. How did you get to this place? And we don't know exactly how. The text doesn't answer the question that Peter asks. It doesn't say he made this decision on this date and then there were these things. But we can see the results of what happened. And what happened here is the same thing that each one of us do 
when we start to sin, as we believe a lie, it's just like in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, that Satan twists the truth. He's a liar. It's his native tongue. He's been doing it since the fall. He comes as a serpent to Eve and says, surely you won't die. God doesn't keep his promises. If you eat the fruit, you'll be like, God, there's a way to find fulfillment. There's a way to find self-satisfaction. And it's apart from God's plan. And what they did was what we oftentimes do is Romans chapter 1, verse 25. If you want to check it out on your own, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we worship created things rather than the creator of all things who's forever to be praised. And so what we do is we take created things like other people's opinions of us, the praise of man, uh, our image, all this stuff that you could put on this passage and a lot more. And we decide to worship that rather than the one who created all that stuff. And so in a quest for joy and satisfaction, we worship things that we think are going to bring us joy and satisfaction rather than the one who created joy and created satisfaction. And so we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And what ends up happening to us is we miss out on the very life that he came to give us. It's stolen from us. John chapter 10 and verse 10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came to give us life and give it to the fullest. And it's taken away, and what we get is the shell of what God intended for us to have. I saw a story recently on CNN. They were talking about it, and the way they promoted it was it was the largest property theft in all of history. And it was like a, a scene right out of a James Bond movie. And so they kind of hooked me. Like, as soon as they started to tell it, I was like, whoa, I want to know more about this. And what happened? And it was like Mission Impossible, something like that. What happened was there were these two thieves, and they dressed up like police officers, put on full uniform, and they went to this museum, and they showed, like, a picture of the museum. And they told the guys that were on guard there that they had gotten a report that there was a disturbance inside the museum. And so they deceived them. And when they went in, they tied them up and put them in the basement. Isn't that, like, straight out of one of those movies? They tie up the guards, they put them in the basement, and then they went into, I think it was six different rooms. They went all through this museum, stole 13 specific pieces of art, stole a Monet, stole three Rembrandts. They took one that was a one-of-a-kind, a seascape. They said that the art that they had stolen, the 13 different pieces, it told what would be valued at about a half a billion dollars. They cut some of them right out of the frame and rolled them up and took them out. And they had a plan, exactly which ones they were going to get. But what happened on CNN is they cut away to a guy who was a, an expert in art, and kind of the finer things in life in general. And they asked him what this was like. And he said, this is like if you could never listen to Beethoven's Fifth again. And all you had was the memory. And what he was saying was, it's like you've experienced the real thing, but now all you have is faint memories of the real thing. And How many believers, followers of Jesus Christ, live a Christian life like that? Or you experienced the real thing when you began a relationship with Jesus or at some point in time. But what you have now, it's not, it's like a memory of what you used to have. Or, or you're living off of someone else's experience. It's coming out of a book of somebody that really loves Jesus. Or somebody that you're friends with and they seem to really be on fire for Jesus. And so you want to be around them because at least you want some faint reminder of what it was like for you. Do you know what's happened? It's been stolen from you. Been taken from you, you've been deceived. And so I ask you the question what lies did you start believing that got you to the, How did you get to? Oh, that's the same question that Peter asked Ananias. How did you get to this place? He says to Ananias, How did you get here? How has Satan so filled your heart? And then he explains to Ananias what's happened. He says, Didn't it all belong to you before it was sold? This isn't about the money. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Remember last week we talked about this was all voluntary, there was no commandment. Barnabas didn't have to do this. No one else had to do this. So you got to decide. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Hmm. 
Well, I'm sure glad God doesn't do that anymore. Aren't you? I mean, can you imagine if God, every time somebody said they were more committed to him than they actually are, they're dead. Can you just imagine us singing, like, with everything, the guy next to him, with almost everything. That, we would have to have like a morgue in the back of the theater. Now talk about hurting attendance. People would be scared to come, and the ones who came, they die. It's, And you look at what happened here. It's, this is judgment that's taking place. This is discipline, wrath. Depends if he's a believer or not. And many of the times we talk about it and we say, well, I'm so glad that God's not like that anymore. And you think about it. Some people even hear him talk about God of the Old Testament. I, you know, I don't like the God of the Old Testament that much. He's kind of wrath and angry and, and it seems like all those things. And the, but the God of the New Testament, it's like you want to just give him a hug. His love and mercy and grace. We love to talk about those things. And you hear some stories in the Old Testament. There are some stories, aren't there? You get the flood. God regretted that he made man. He wipes out the entire earth except for a small remnant, people who will have faith. Or, or you get Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, there's literally, wipes them out because of their sin. You get some of these stories. I don't know if you've read Leviticus. I know it's not the most popular book to read, but if you read Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10, there's this story. Aaron's sons, the high priest's sons, they go to make an offering that's not the kind of offering that God said he wanted. It was contrary to his commands. And they take their censers and they're going to put some fire in. And they get consumed with fire, with God's presence. Uh, you read different plagues. You leave, sometimes we read you know, the story of the Israelites. Do you ever wonder what that was like from an Egyptian perspective? <laughs> the plagues wiped out by the water? You get all these stories. We already talked about Achan in the Old Testament. Uh, you look at the golden calf story. Sometimes we talk about that and, and we'll even joke about how fickle the people were. You know, Moses goes up on the mountain for like a month. And, and then they say, we need another God. So they make us a God. Aaron makes them a, high, you know, a calf that they can worship and, and proclaim that that did all the stuff. And, and then Moses comes down, he's mad, he breaks the tablets. We don't talk about what happens after that. You know what happens after that? After that, Moses, he's ticked off. And he says, from the Lord, he says to them, everybody who's following the Lord, come here. And the Levites come to him. There are more people than just the Levites. The Levites that come to him, he says, strap a sword to your side and start running through here and killing these wicked people. And they kill their brothers and their fathers and all the people that are doing this sin. 3,000 people die that day. And then on top of that, God sends a plague on them. Glad God doesn't do that anymore. Let me point something out about this passage here in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. They're in the New Testament. They come after the resurrection. In fact, that stuff's in the New Testament too. We just tend to not like to talk about it. It's in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 that it says that you don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a dreadful thing. It's talking about judgment. It's in the New Testament that we read that some people die because they took communion in an unworthy way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's warning the Corinthian believers about the way that they're taking communion. That's why he says you examine yourself. Make sure that you've dealt with your sin. Don't tread lightly into these things. In the history of Southbridge, every time we've done it, and I've had people get mad at me for this, okay? I've had people tell me, who are you to tell me? And I, I didn't. I'm just telling you what the scripture said. We warn people, look, if you're not a Christian, don't take. you got sin, don't, don't be rushing into this thing like just grabbing a cracker and some juice. Look what Paul says in verse 30 of chapter 11. He says, that's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. He's saying they died. It's in the New Testament that we read that our God is a consuming fire. And so we read in Leviticus where we've seen that it's happened. But in the New Testament, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Also in chapter 12, talking about believers, 
talks about God's discipline. He disciplines those he loves, verses 5 and 6. He says, if you're a son or daughter, have you forgotten the word of encouragement? Don't take light of the word, Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. And you look here and say, was well, that what's happening here? It's definitely divine judgment. It's in the New Testament. Does God still do that kind of thing now? Well, here's the tough part about that. You're asking to try and interpret circumstances, and we don't have a chapter and verse to tell you exactly what God was doing. So anytime you try to interpret circumstances, you get into dangerous territory. But you can see circumstances sometimes where it looks pretty obvious. It looks pretty clear. And there was a church that I used to serve at before we came here, and we started Southbridge. Um, they had a pastor, their founding pastor, loved Jesus. Uh, God was using them at their church. People were getting saved. grew thousands of people in the church. Um, God used them in positive ways in a lot of people's lives. But they found out he was having affairs with multiple women in the church. And they removed him from a situation uh, where he was pastoring there. And a short time later, he decided he was going to start another church in the same city with some of the same people. And started doing the same thing. And they got a brain tumor and died in a month. I don't know what happened. It sure looks like God said, that enough's enough. You're causing more damage than good. I'm done. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the New Testament. Let me point out to you this. The greatest act of wrath and judgment ever. You can take all the stuff that happened in the Old Testament. Aaron's sons, golden calf, flood, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam all together. They don't even hold a candle to what we see in the New Testament. Because we see in the New Testament that there's a man who's totally innocent. He's the only one that ever existed. And he takes on the full wrath of God because of your sin and mine. And his name is Jesus Christ. He was God's son. Parents, can you even imagine giving away your child so that someone else could have life? And God takes his only begotten son. And he gives him to the world. And we kill him. And he didn't do anything wrong. And the reason why wasn't because God's just some angry dictator up in heaven. It's because he has to deal with sin. Because sin is serious. And the reason why he dies isn't because of his sin. It's because of your sin and because of my sin. It's what we call substitutionary atonement. He, he died in our place as our substitute. But the thing that we have to do is we have to bow our knee to him. We have to receive the payment that he made for us. And we trust Jesus Christ. It was the greatest act of wrath ever in history. As the full wrath of God is poured out on Christ. That's in the New Testament. Let me tell you something. God is still serious about sin. We just minimize it. He doesn't play games with sin. We do. And he still cares. If this passage teaches us nothing else about anything, it teaches us that God is serious about sin. And he was serious about Ananias' sin. And the people saw that. And it taught them all a lesson. Then his wife comes in. It says in verse 17, or verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. You ever walk into a situation and it seems like everybody else knows what's going on but you? Ever see that show, Intervention? She's about to have an intervention. It doesn't go well. She doesn't know what's going on. Everybody else knows what's going on. And Peter asks her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? And, and he doesn't say the number. Isn't it interesting? The passage doesn't tell us the number. So we don't know if he's talking about like the number that's the real price. We don't know if he's talking about the number that they lied about. We don't know. And we don't know if he's got it on like a scroll, maybe a tablet of some sort. I imagine if it was today, he'd have like a legal pad, right? Is this the number? It'd be one of those yellow ones because those are way more official than the paper I use. So I use white paper. Yellow ones, like, is that the number? Like, you're, you're negotiating? Yeah, that's the number. He gave her another, he was being gracious. Gives her a chance to repent. Gives her a chance to do the right thing. She doesn't do it. And then Peter said to her, verse 9, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? I hear the word that's used for test. 
is the idea of uh, seeing how much you can get away with. How far can you go? You know, it's like, here's the line, and we always kind of want to go, how, how far, you know, how far, can, how close to the line can I get without God getting upset? And Peter's saying, how could you do that to the Lord? How could you test him in that way? Those of you who have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Kids always, it's, it's in our nature. It's called the sin nature, but it's in our nature uh, that we, we want to do this. We want to see, you know, what will mom and dad let me do? But what happens is eventually you learn. Like, don't, you, know, you know, my kids know. It's like, you know, dad, can I do this? No. Once I do this thing, you know, once he does that thing with his eyebrow, stop. now it's time to be done. Okay, stop asking. Don't mess around. But what happens at our house is every once in a while we'll have a babysitter come. And Shannon and I will go out on a date. And, and then the babysitter will come, especially if it's a new babysitter. And we'll get back, and then we'll get the report, and I'll say, well, you know, they, they, tried, they said that they could eat ice cream in their bed. <laughs> they said they could leave the lights on. They said they could watch three movies before they went to bed. They said and it's all this stuff they know they can't do, right? And Peter's saying here, Sapphira, why are you treating God like a babysitter? He's your father. He loves you. The reason why he doesn't want you to sin is because he wants what's best for you. And he knows what's best for you is him. And so he wants you to run from the line to him, to his arms. Why'd you test the Lord? And look what Peter says. Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband. Oh, by the way, he's dead. She didn't know. They're at the door, and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, and they found her, and they carried her out. They buried her beside her husband. And then look at verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. That's a theme in this verse. We saw it up in verse 5. After Ananias died, it says, And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. In the verse 11, we get, And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And so not just the church, but also those people who heard about what had taken place and saw how the church responded and how we respond to the Lord. And sometimes we make Him so light. And how we respond to the Lord impacts how other people think about Him. Was great fear. And because sin is serious, fear is an appropriate response. A lot of times we talk about fear like it's a bad thing, but the fear of God is an appropriate response to God. One of the reasons why we talk about fear as such a bad thing is because we oftentimes talk about all the stuff that we shouldn't be afraid of when we talk about fear. We talk about fear of man, we talk about fear of loss, and I'm going to lose my favorite possession or relationship or shirt or whatever it is you fill in the blank with. the fear of the bad circumstances, whatever the worst case circumstances are for us, or the fear of death, or the fear of not having this, or the fear of this thing being said about us, or the fear, and there's all these kinds of fears that are out there, and we fear all the wrong stuff. And what we should be fearing is there's a fear of God. But we don't. Instead, we fear all this other stuff. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and caring more about created things than we do about the creator of all those things. And instead, what we do is we make God incredibly light, and we treat him like he's our buddy. You know, people talk to God, hey God, you know, like we're just hanging out or something. There's t-shirts out there that say, Jesus is my homeboy. Let me tell you something, Jesus is not your homeboy. He is your savior. He took upon the wrath of God for your sins. Does he want a relationship with you? Yes. Does he dwell in unapproachable light? Yes. Is he okay with sin? Nope. Did he deal with it? Yes. Does he want to be your friend? Yes. Is he totally different than you? Yes. Is he incredibly dangerous? Yeah. Is he good? Yep. All those things are true. And see, the problem is we try to fashion God into our own image. He's not like us. He is holy. He is just. He's actually in heaven right now with angels upon angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Hey, God. Are we kidding? 
we miss who he is. There's a, a movie I like to watch with my kids. It's a Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. You can read it in book form as well. And uh, there's a, a Christ-like figure in that movie, Aslan. He's a lion. At the end of the movie, there's a little girl who's developed a really close relationship with Aslan, the lion. And at this point, spoiler alert, at this point in the movie, at the end of the movie, Aslan has dealt with evil, has dealt with sin, and has won. And he's walking away, and then the little girl gets told, he's not safe, but he's good. It's a description of the Lord. Is he safe? No, he's different than us. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But is he good? Yes. See, the fear we're talking about here is not fear like you have of some crazy dictator. Like he's just going to all of a sudden start zapping people from heaven because he's upset that day. And it's not like, you know, people are afraid right now in North Korea. And this guy, our like, saving grace is this guy doesn't have technology to get bombs over here. But if he did, then people would be terrified. They could get nuclear weapons over here. I'm not talking about fearing like that, like we hide under the table from God. But I'm also not talking about just a reverent respect, like if royalty came walking in. We'd stand a little straighter, be a little more formal. I mean, it's legitimate fear. And we forget sometimes what the scriptures say. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says, The beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is fear of the Lord. But fools despise it. How foolish do we have to be then to ignore it? Because sometimes we talk about like, we can't talk about this stuff because then non-believers, they'll be scared off. You're gonna, you have a scary God uh, or new believers, they won't understand what you're talking about. I don't think God needs me to make them more palatable. But let me tell you something about the fear of the Lord. The Proverbs also say this in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. It's the very beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom is to understand he's not like us. That's different. And you know what? He hates sin, which should cause us, instead of running to the line, to run from the line. You know what the safest place is from this God that we're to fear? It's in his arms. It's with him through Jesus Christ who's taken on and dealt with all that sin. And you look at what happens with these people here in this passage of Scripture in verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church. You imagine what they did at this moment. I mean, can you think, think about, imagine with me, and this was hopefully, Lord willing, is totally hypothetical. Imagine I lie to you today and God strikes me down dead. And then you find out later the reason why God struck me down dead is because I lied. What would that cause you to do? Wouldn't you ask yourself, uh, do I, am I lying? Like, what's my sin? And imagine there's a lot of self-examination taking place in the early church. They had great power last week, great grace last week, and here they have great fear. Great fear. It's a fear of God. It's a healthy fear of God. Because he's not like us. He is holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. When John sees him in the book of Revelation, he turns around, he falls down as though dead. When Isaiah sees him, he says, woe to me, I'm a sinful man. He's different than us. But he's good. And he loves you. And he loves you so much. He doesn't just overlook your sins. It's for our iniquities that Jesus Christ was crushed. It's because of our sin that he was abandoned. And he came that you could have life. And that fear of God, it's part of experiencing that life. And so how foolish of us to ignore it. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to do the same thing I believe the early church was probably doing. Spend some time. Some people need to repent of sin. Some people need to examine their hearts, ask God to show them, just like Psalm 139 says, examine me and show me if there's any offensive way in me. Because you may have things that you're, so, you're blind to because you've been focusing on other things. And ask God to speak those things into your heart, into your life. There are some people who have never bowed your knee to Jesus Christ. And, and you know what? I'm not telling you you need to be scared of God. I'm not telling you you need to clean up your act. I'm not telling you just to deal with your sin. You know what you need? You need Jesus. He already dealt with it for you. 
Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he was paying your debt that you were acquiring because of all your sin against God. But he paid it all for you. And so you bow your heart and your life to Jesus Christ and receive the gift that he's offering you. That's what some of you need to do is trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior today. Others of you, maybe you're at a place where you look at your Christian life and you go, it's just a faint memory of what was the real thing at some point. How did you get there? Ask the Lord to show you, how did I get here and how do I get back? And it begins with dealing with sin, dealing with lies. And so the worship team's going to come. They're going to play a song. We're just going to all bow our hearts before the Lord. So right now, I'll begin us in prayer. And some of you need various different things you need to do with the Lord. I'm going to let the Spirit tell you what needs to happen in your life. But let me begin us in praying. Father, we come before you as a, a church, and we just ask that you would speak to each heart. I ask that you would speak to anyone who needs to trust your son Jesus Christ as their Savior this morning. I pray that right now would be a moment of salvation. And just in your seat, you may even just acknowledge sin before God. Tell him that you sin. It's not a secret. He knows. He knows everything. And you know. If you realize that sin's an offense to him, that he's serious about that sin, that he sent his son to die for that, and you want to place your faith in him, then do that right now. And those of you believers who already trusted Christ, Father, I just pray for my friends that know you, that you would search our hearts, that you would show us if there's anything offensive in us, that you'd bring up sin that needs to be dealt with, even if we think it's little stuff. God, give us a greater picture of who you are. Give us a healthy fear of you. Not because we're scared like you're out to hurt us, but that you are different than us. And that we should recognize that and we should act accordingly. God, have us be afraid of sin because of the damage that it does, but not only to us, but because of the damage it does for your reputation, the way that you dislike it. Help us to love the things that you love. Help us to love your son, Jesus. And we'll just give you a few moments to continue to talk to the Lord. And Jad will wrap us up. Thank you.